Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Our world has never been more convenient and comfortable. With just a few taps of our fingers, we can order food to our door, access endless entertainment options, and keep our climate at a steady 72 degrees. We don't have to put in much effort, much less face any risk or challenge in order to sustain our daily lives. In some ways, this quantum leap in humanity's comfort level is a great boon, but in other ways, it's absolutely killing our minds, bodies, and spirit. My guest says it's time to reclaim the currently hard to come by but truly essential benefits of discomfort. His name is Michael Easter. He's a writer, editor, and professor, and the author of The Comfort Crisis, Embrace Discomfort to Claim Your Wild, Happy, Healthy Self. Michael first shares how his experience with getting sober helped him discover the life-changing potential of doing hard things before digging into what fleeing from discomfort is doing to our mental and physical health. We then discuss the Japanese idea of misogi, which involves taking an epic outdoor challenge, and why Michael decided to do a misogi in which he participated in a month-long caribou hunt in the backcountry of Alaska. Michael shares what he learned from the various challenges he encountered during his misogi, including intense hunger, boredom, solitude, and physical exertion, as well as what research can tell us all about why we need to incorporate these same kinds of discomforts into our everyday lives. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash comfort crisis. All right, Michael Easter, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. So you got a book out, The Comfort Crisis, Embrace Discomfort to Reclaim Your Wild, Happy, Healthy Self. And this book is your journey of getting more comfortable with being uncomfortable and showing the research that, you know, the benefits that come with that. What kickstarted this whole thing of exploring discomfort? Yeah, I I mean, I think there's a a handful of things. What really set it off for me, though, is uh, a handful of years ago, I ended up getting sober. So in the book, I talk about I come from this long line of men who just hum on booze and bedlam. Like my my dad once painted his horse green and rode it into a bar with a woman who was not my mom. Uh, it was on St. Patrick's Day, hence the green. I have one hilarious story from my family is that I have a cousin who got thrown into a dry out cell and he comes to and he realizes that apparently we're having an impromptu family reunion. He'd gotten thrown into this cell with my uncle just on accident, you know, so... Anyways, I was kind of starting to ride that same metaphorical horse, if you will. And I realized that I needed to change. You know, I I tried a lot to quit drinking and finally just something took where I, you know, asked for help and getting sober was definitely the most uncomfortable thing I've ever done. I mean, your body's really trying to figure out what is going on with this new way of living because alcohol essentially becomes a comfort blanket for people who have a drinking problem. It sort of, you know, comforts you from from the stuff in the world that you just don't want to face. You know, maybe you're like a little unsure of yourself, whatever. When you drink, it fixes that. And once you take that away, it's like, oh man, now now I got to live normally. And so going through that, it was hell for a while, but then you come out the other side and it's like, my life just got so much better, like in every single way possible. I mean, I can't even, I mean, just anything that you could think could go better went better. And so from that experience, I could see like when I was drinking, I didn't want to get sober because I was like afraid of having to go through that and see what would happen on the other side. But once I did, it was like, man, things got better. So I could see like, oh, there's there's benefits in discomfort and doing these things that we don't want to do facing our fears and just really diving into discomfort. 
So, okay, you, st- you started to do this deep dive and you started exploring in the ways in which modern life, you know, we're extremely comfortable and we, we should all feel blessed and fortunate that we live in a wage where there's antibiotics, there's running water. But then you also highlight, you know, there's some downsides to that as well. How can comfort cause problems in our lives? Yeah. So, and that was the thing is after I got sober, you know, I had this, I noticed that going through discomfort was, was good and always leaning into comfort like I had been doing maybe wasn't good. And then I sort of realized, oh my God, my life is still completely, completely surrounded in comfort. I mean, if, if you stop and focus on everything around you, basically everything in our daily lives now that most impacts our daily life, it's probably new and it's probably made to make your life more comfortable or easier or less effortful in some way. So think about climate control, right? We live at 72 degrees. We have cell phones that we can use to basically cure any semblance of boredom we have or order food and have it delivered directly to our door, stream down videos, whatever. We have you know, this whole transportation system. We live behind screens and we sit in chairs all day. We have this food system where we don't have to put in any effort at all for food. And it's had some consequences. I mean, you can tie it to everything from chronic disease to depression to even feeling a lack of meaning because it's like humans thrive on on challenges, on being pushed up against and coming out the other side, just like I did having to get sober, right? But we often don't have these in our lives all the time now. And so it's had some consequences for sure. Yeah. And that idea of like sense of meaning or purpose, you know, you hear people reporting how life just seems harder now. It's like, ah, oh, I'm just, everyone's like, everyone's tired. I'm so tired. But it's like, you know, it, it's weird. It, it seems every, things feel harder, even though it's actually, if you compare it to the, you know, the whole length of human history, it's pretty easy. What do you think is going on there? Why does life feel harder, even though we've got it pretty good today? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And there's a scientific reason for this, actually. Um, I talked to uh, researchers at Harvard, psychologists, and there's this idea that the dorky name for it is called prevalence-induced concept change. And I tend to think about it as problem or comfort creep. Essentially, the human brain evolved to make relative comparisons. It's this brain mechanism that saved us energy. So we don't when something new is sort of introduced to our lives that improves our lives, we adapt to it. And we don't sort of look back and think, oh man, we're making great progress. This is great. We kind of look back at the last thing and think, oh man, now that's totally unacceptable to us. Basically what happens is we have, as we have more comforts introduced to our lives, we don't necessarily become more satisfied with them. We just sort of lower our threshold for what we consider comfortable. This also applies to things like problems. So once we've solved the problem, we don't actually think in our brain, oh, I have fewer problems right now. We just go looking for the next problem to solve. So we sort of end up with the same number of problems, except our new problems are progressively more hollow. So you can think about this as almost the science of first world problems. We keep on moving the dial into comfort and convenience and having everything done for us And we don't think, oh man, 20 years ago, I didn't have a cell phone. Wow, this is amazing. Instead, it's like, man, Instagram has crashed. This is the worst thing ever. We we freak out, right? And this is like (laughs) put at scale to to everything in our lives. All right. So yeah, doing hard stuff can put some 
some first world problems in perspective. So in your quest to like, you know, figure out, explore the science of being uncomfortable, one of the first guys you talk to is this sports doctor. He works with a lot of pro athletes, NBA athletes, NFL stars to help them prevent injuries. But he's also got this idea that he took from Japanese culture called misogis. So you tell us about this, this sports doctor and his idea of misogis. Yeah. So this guy's name is Marcus Elliott. He's a far out character. So he's a Harvard MD and he decides he doesn't want to be a doctor. He's going to go into sports science. And his first job was with the Patriots. They were at the time, this is in the early 2000s. They had this crazy high hamstring injury rate. It was like 21 a year. And he applied, you know, real science to sports, which hadn't really been done before. And he dropped their injury rate to like three a year. Then he was like a performance director for the for the MLB. And now he has his own facility where he has contracts with the NBA. So basically every NBA player, incoming NBA player comes through there and he does all this really technical scientific stuff where he tracks their movement patterns and you know applies it to this big algorithm. And he can basically tell you, okay, you have this specific movement pattern. When we see that in a player, that means the player usually will have a say 60% chance of tearing an ACL. That season, but he can also tell you like, Hey, this is a skill you're really good at compared to everyone else. Let's develop that. Cause we think it could help your game. So I told you all that to basically tell you this guy is obviously very into science and data, et cetera. But he also knows that, you know, not everything that improves not only athletes, but humans in general can be measured. And so he started doing this thing that he calls Masogi and it's based off this uh, Japanese myth. It's essentially a big physical challenge and conducted in nature. And there are only two rules and the rules are that it must be truly difficult, which he measures essentially by saying you should have a 50, 50 shot of finishing it a true 50, 50 shot. And then the second rule is that you can't die. And that part's pretty straightforward, right? So And ideally, the challenge is a bit kooky. So for example, one year, him and some athletes, they got this 85-pound rock, and they walked it five miles underwater in the Santa Barbara Channel. And then they've also done stuff like, okay, we're going to strap packs to our back, and we're going to drive out to the mountains, and we're just going to pick the farthest peak we can see, and we're going to try and hike to it in a day. They've done things like they they stand up paddleboard across the Santa Barbara Channel after only having stand up paddleboarded a few times. So the whole idea here is that you're putting yourself in a position doing something physical in nature that is going to be very truly challenging for you where you only have a 50% shot of making it. And what he's trying to do is, is mimic these past challenges that we used to face as we were evolving. You know, as, as humans evolved, we had to do true challenges in nature all the time. And these were things that our environment would usually naturally show at us. So this could be things like having to go on a big hunt, or maybe you're trying to migrate down to your summering grounds and you're going over a pass and like a gnarly storm hits. Maybe it's, you know, a tiger lurking in the bushes. Nowadays, we don't face these type of of challenges. And Back in our past, when we would go through these, we would sort of learn something about ourselves and dig deep and become a more confident and competent person. But nowadays, we don't, we don't really have challenges. Like You can never be challenged in life and you can still have plenty of food. You'll have a comfortable home. You can probably have a decent job. You have a family, which seems, which seems totally fine. And it is. But at the same time, 
let's say like you have this, you know, big potential that's this big circle. Well, it's like most people just live in this sort of dinner plate size circle within that. They never really go out and see what exists on the edges of their potential. And by not having any idea of like what's out on those edges, you really miss a lot in life and you miss learning something about yourself that can really help you in life. So he believes that by doing these things like Masogi, you kind of have this innate evolutionary machinery that gets triggered when you go out and you do these hard things and you really explore the edges of your comfort zone. So you're putting yourself in a position where failure is totally possible because in the modern world, failure is you know getting a bad look from your boss or not getting enough likes on Instagram. So we kind of have this outsized fear of failure and the repercussions of these failures that we really fear they're kind of all inside our head. Like it's not really going to affect our, our livelihood. It's just going to make us, you know, a little bit stressed and anxious. So by getting out into the wild and doing these Masogi like challenges, you lose a lot of fear. You start to learn something about yourself. Things start moving for you and you come out on the other end, whether you made it or not, as an improved person who's sort of a lot more confident, a lot more competent. And so the idea is like, let's introduce some metaphorical tigers back into our life. Right. And you see these things. I mean, this, when I talk about this, people are like, well, this guy sounds kind of kooky, you know? And it's like, yeah, maybe he is. But at the same time, you look at how past societies lived and this idea of a myth where a hero sort of leaves the comfort of home. He goes out into this trying middle ground, really struggles, almost fails, but he makes it and he comes out on the other side, an improved person. These myths exist throughout time and space. So this is what Joseph Campbell essentially called the hero's journey. And you also see them in things like traditional rites of passage. So for example, the Maasai tribe, young men would have to go out and hunt a lion with a spear in order to transition into this new, more competent part of life and become a warrior in the tribe. You have things like Aboriginal walkabout. The Nez Perce tribe would send people out on these nature quests where they'd go out into nature for like a week's time and they'd fast and you know they'd have these challenges. But then when they came back, they had learned so much about their potential and what they're capable on. They were ready to become leaders in the tribe. So we're trying to sort of mimic those things that are very important for humans and have been for millennia that we just don't face anymore. So in addition to doing these like analysis of physiology, is he putting athletes that he consults with through these Masogis? He makes it an elective. If they want to, he tells them about it. Some don't want to do it, but those that do, like you talk to him and he, he goes, those are the people that are, that tend to have the most clutch performances, especially in, you know, high, high stakes situations because they have this kind of new thing on board that they didn't really know was there. You know, they've really been tested. And all of a sudden, once you've, I don't know, let's say stand up paddleboarded across the channel when you're maybe even afraid of water, you're like, man, all of a sudden a playoff game becomes more manageable. Not that that's not a high stress situation, but you've had all these other super high stress situations that help you sort of buffer that. And you can really dig deep and you just feel like, man, I've got something on board. I think I can explore this thing and, and do it. All right. So inspired by this idea, you came up with your own Misogi, and that was to go backcountry hunting for caribou in Alaska. Where did that come from? <laughs> yeah. So I'd, uh, I'd, I'd met Marcus and then through my work, so Marcus kind of tells me about this Misogi idea and I'm 
I'm fascinated by it. And through my work, I've become friends with Donnie Vincent. And Donnie Vincent, for people who don't know, he's a backcountry bow hunter and filmmaker. And he goes into the world's most remote, off-the-grid, sort of extreme places, and he'll hunt for months at a time. He'll be up there for one month, two months, three months. And he invited me up to the Arctic with him for more than a month on a caribou hunt. And I sort of thought of that idea of Misogi and thought, man, this might also be a really good way to explore a lot of these discomforts that we've removed from our lives. And I definitely did find some (laughs) discomfort up there. For example, you know, we faced constant hunger all the time. We're eating about 2000 calories and burning a lot more than that. Everything took effort. I mean, this was from carrying our packs. They were usually around 80 pounds all the time to everything like having to go get water so you could make dinner and have water to drink. We'd have to hike down to this stream and then hike it all the way back up to camp. And, you know, there was like grizzlies would hang out by the stream, you know, so there's also a mental stress. Uh, There was negative 20 temperatures, really crazy weather that could have been perilous. And even things like long stretches of boredom because you don't have a cell phone or TV or tablet or computer up there. Even things like being in solitude and really complete silence can be eerie at first, you know, and because I'm hunting, I'm facing the life cycle. And we faced some of those real challenges, like I just talked about, you know, we got put in positions where I wanted to quit, but if I would have quit, it could have been perilous, you know? So I had to sort of keep going by coming out on the other side. You, you learn a lot about yourself. So that's how I ended up up in the Arctic for a month. Right. Well, we'll dig in. I want to dig into some of these things you learned about, you know, hunger and boredom and things like that. But one thing you mentioned in the book I thought was interesting as you were preparing for this, this hunt, and then even after the hunt, you notice this as well, that you notice that it felt like time sort of slowed down a bit. And then you actually have to research like what's going on there. And there's actually a scientific reason why time seemed to slow down a bit as you were doing this Misogi. What's going on there? Yeah, so this this was really, really fascinating to me. The human brain is essentially programmed to default into a predictable routine. Now, this is thanks to how we evolved, because as we evolved, you know, we lived in these dangerous, trying, uncomfortable environments. And having predictability in our life, it kept us safe. It like let us know how to avoid animals, where to get food. And we would rinse and repeat, right? It could keep us safe. But now that our world is sort of safe and predictable, it's kind of an evolutionary bug. It sort of traps us within this comfort zone and this routine where we just do the same stuff every day, day in and day out. So, I mean, take me in as an example, and this is slightly changed because of the pandemic, but, you know... I drive, I eat the same breakfast every, every morning. I drive the same route to work and listen to the same, you know, radio station or whatever it is. I basically have do the same job. I have the same converse, basic conversation with coworkers. Then I go home and eat the same basic dinner. And on the weekends, I do the same kind of thing, right? It's like we live in these very, very routine lives. Now, the problem with that is that once you've really settled into a routine and just rinsed and repeated it so often, it causes your brain to go on autopilot. So you're essentially sleepwalking through life. This, this saves your brain energy, but it also means you're like not aware of what's going on around you. You can totally 
tune out. So this is like why if you've ever noticed when you're when you're driving and it's a route you've taken all the time, you can drive for 20 minutes and then be thinking and be like, oh wait, like I don't even I wasn't really paying attention, right? You're just kind of stuck up inside your head. And I think William James said it best is that at the end of your life, what your life is is that which you've been aware of. So if you're stuck in this cycle of being up inside your head, just doing the same thing day in, day out, like you're never going to remember having the same breakfast you ate every morning and watching the same Netflix. Like this, these are just not memorable things. And so when you do new novel things, you know, for me, that was going up to Alaska, but also even having to train to go to the Arctic and learn all this different stuff for this book it essentially kicks you out of this autopilot mode because all of a sudden your brain doesn't know what to expect and how to respond to what's coming in. So you essentially get kicked in the butt into awareness. It's like a nice little wake-up call. So in this sense, I almost think about it as you know getting out of our comfort zone to do, do and learn new things. It's kind of a lot like meditation, but you know you don't have to sit and focus on your breath. You just, it forces you into that awareness that meditation is sort of looking after. And the research also shows that when we do new things, it slows down our sense of time. And this goes back to, you can't, you don't know what to predict. You can't expect what's coming on. So you really have to be aware. And this seems to have a contracting effect in terms of time. And this is actually why Time seems slower when we were kids because everything was new then, right? So you're constantly learning and doing new things and it just like makes the time go by slower. This is another thing that William James, the father of psychology, was writing about in the 1800s and they've followed up with studies on this and people consistently report that when they're learning and doing new things, time slows down, which I find funny. So my, my background for a little more is I worked at Men's Health Magazine for a lot, lot of years. And I still am a contributing editor there. And now I'm a professor at UNLV and I write books. But, you know, in some of my work for men's health, like I'm always covering these guys, it tends to always be men, to be honest, who are really fascinated by longevity and living longer. And I've covered people who've done, frankly, some really strange things, like gotten illegal pharmaceuticals that they think are going to help them live longer. I've covered you know, guys who, I don't know if you've heard of blood boys, but the idea is essentially by pumping the blood of a younger person into your blood, the plasma can help you live longer. So just like all these kind of wacky methods to live longer. But to me, it's like, who cares if you have more years, if you're stuck in this routine and you don't remember any of them, right? It, like, And it just goes by in this sort of blur where you look back in your life and we're like, Oh man, wait, what did I do? I was like kind of stuck in my head the whole time. Like by doing and learning new things, you're slowing down time and it makes, allows you to really sort of squeeze more out of the time that you have on earth. All right. So if you feel like you're on cruise control to the grave and you want to disrupt that, just start doing some hard things. That's one quick way to do that where life feels more extended and prolonged. Yes, exactly. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. And now back to the show. All right, so uh, let's talk about you go on your hunt. And one of the things you talk about, you noticed first right away was just being bored. Really, like not just like bored, you're in the off doctor's office waiting for your appointment. It was like the most boredom you've ever felt in your entire life. Like how soon did you, did you feel that boredom? Oh, man. So 
we're up there hunting caribou and the, my time in the, my month in the Arctic is the overarching narrative of the book. And then as I talk about each of these elemental discomforts uh, that humans need to face, I go into different on ground reporting, but we're up there hunting for caribou and, and caribou migrate up to summering and wintering grounds. They're always moving. They can run like 55 miles an hour, which is insane. So a lot of it is, you know, you get on a glassing knob, and where you think that they might be coming through and you just sort of wait to see if you're right. And my cell phone doesn't work up there. It's essentially a useless brick. I didn't bring a book. It's not like I brought any other real electronics. So it's like, what do you do with your time? All of a sudden I'm like, holy crap, I've never been this bored in my life. So I start you know, I'm, I think for a while and then I'm like reading the labels on my cliff bars, just really scrutinizing them, reading all the labels on my outdoor gear. Then when that gets, that eventually gets boring, right? So I ended up writing some of the book, then that gets boring. And I'm like, okay, I guess I'll come up with my Christmas list, you know, <laughs> like figure out what everyone's getting for Christmas. So I'm kind of doing one thing after another to stave off boredom. And this is, so radically different than life at home because when I'm at home, anytime I feel boredom, I've got a cell phone in my pocket. I've got a TV on the wall that has Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, HBO Max. I mean, I can go on for days, right? I've got a computer that has access to the internet. Like We have so many different ways, easy, effortless ways to deal with our boredom now. And our default is to just dive into some sort of electronic device to deal with boredom because boredom is uncomfortable. It's this evolutionary discomfort that we evolved to have that yells at us to say, hey, whatever you're doing right now, it's an inefficient use of your time. So you should do something else. And back in the day, that thing might've been like, okay, I've, I've been picking berries at this bush for an hour and once like it became harder and harder to pick berries, boredom would kick on and they'd be like, okay, you're, this isn't a good use of your time anymore. Why don't you go hunt? Or why don't you go to another bush and pick its, its berries? Because it'll have more and they'll be easier to access. But now our escape from boredom, as one researcher put it, is like junk food for our mind. You know, We just dive right into usually our phone. So we spend... We now spend, if you look at the data, 11 hours a day on average engaging with media, which is a ton of media. Like that media wasn't even in our lives 100 years ago. And now it's essentially become our lives. And this has had definite repercussions for our brain. Up in uh, Alaska, because I didn't have this super easy outlet for boredom, I have like this 11 hours a day back. It's like, what do I do with it? My mind went inward. I thought of different things that I could do that would be productive. I did productive things like writing a book in my little weatherproof notebook. You know, I I thought and I planned and I did all these sort of productive things. Also had like great conversations with the two guys I was up there with, noticed nature, sat with myself. And it was really enlightening and and frankly productive and, and a lot more interesting than what I might find on. Instagram or, you know, watching another episode of, of Top Chef. And so when I got back home, I, I looked at a lot of the research on boredom. And it also turns out that when we are paying attention to anything in the outside world, our brain is working really, really hard. 
And when we face boredom and have to go inward and think about, okay, what am I going to do next? It kicks on a restorative state called the default mode network. So this is kind of like this rest period that lets our brain revive and come back to, uh, you know, become stronger more or less. So the benefits of giving your brain downtime by facing boredom is it's associated with a lot more creativity. It's associated with lower rates of anxiety, and it's also uh, can lead to more focus and productivity. So I think we live in a world now where because cell phones are new and they actively steal our attention, everyone, you read all these stories that are like, use your cell phone less, use your cell phone less. How do I use my cell phone less? But the reality is, if you decide you're going to use your cell phone less and you just use your this time you've gained to watch Netflix, your brain doesn't know the difference. You know, so I think it's a lot better and more productive to think more boredom instead of less cell phone or less TV or less computer. Just put yourself in these positions where you can become bored. And it's not, it's not easy. I mean, cell phones are great. Don't get me wrong. I mean, but we need this. And so another thing you, you notice when you're out there is how alone you were. There was like probably no one for hundreds of miles except for uh, you and the guides. And you notice there was actually, I mean, it was kind of hard to be away from people. But then you also notice there's actually something enjoyable. You had a benefit out of out of the solitude. What was that? Yeah, we. So at one point, you have to take all these to get way out in the Arctic on the tundra. You have to take all these little planes, and they land on the tundra, and you have to do a lot of ferrying. So at one point, I got dropped about a hundred miles from any semblance of civilization, and the guy I was with, you know, he was going to go before me to our next stop. Cause you have to take successively smaller planes. And, um, so I'm totally alone out there, except there's big clods of grizzly bear poop all around. So I'm freaking out. And it, it hits me that I never been that alone in my life. I mean, there's no one around me in terms of humans for miles and miles and miles, but there's, al- but there's also no one with me through my cell phone, through text, through Instagram, say through podcasts or TV or whatever. Today, even when people think they're alone, they're, they're usually not because they're usually engaging with other people through different devices. And this is kind of a, a paradox now because, you know, despite the fact that people say they're more lonely than ever, and the data does really bear that out, we're never actually alone. We're always kind of with people somehow. And being alone out there was definitely uncomfortable at first, right? Because you're like, oh man, if a storm comes in, I could be stranded out here for days. If a grizzly bear comes around, I mean, I'm a buck 70 and he's about 1500 pounds. That's not going to be fun, you know? (laughs) But then it sort of became interesting because I started to sort of introspect and think, man, all of a sudden, like I'm totally freed from society. And without society in the equation, this social narrative of how that I should think and act and behave, it doesn't actually hold up. All of a sudden, you start to realize, man, I do a lot of stuff in my life just as a reaction to society because this is what society says that a man at you know 30-whatever years old should be doing. So it's kind of freeing. You feel a little bit unencumbered and unaffected. And it's kind of a welcome change you know, from home. And so the message here is not that social connection is bad. Not at all. You know, social connection is super important. We know this from the research. We know that there are big downsides to loneliness, 
But the message is more that there's a, there's a difference between loneliness and solitude. Solitude is sort of choosing to be by yourself and using that time for positive introspection, for creativity, and for growth. And sort of getting to know yourself, which kind of sounds cheesy, but I think a lot of us just kind of run on autopilot all the time. We don't really understand how we really feel about things. And we also know from things like, I mean, there's research backing this, and I talk to scientists, but we also know things from thousands of years of religious, spiritual, and intellectual disciplines around the world that solitude is important. So think about, you know, Jesus spent 40 days in the desert in solitude, sort of coming to the center of his faith with the temptation of the Christ. You had Buddha, he exits the, you know, wealthy palace gates to go, you know, roam the world in solitude. You had Henry David Thoreau, he goes out and he lives at Walden Pond alone away from society. Even uh, Lincoln was very, very heavy into solitude. That's where he got his best work done. So the researchers I talked to think that we should be thinking about trying to build this capacity to be alone. It's a thing that we have less and less of now. When they, when they poll people, they tend to say, I feel very uncomfortable when I'm alone. But we, we need to flip that because if, if your social connections ever die off and you are alone, well, you're going to be in a pickle. But if you can build this capacity to just be with yourself and use solitude as a time to introspect, get to know yourself, use it for creativity, use it for whatever whatever you want to do, but really just to sort of get something on board, be okay with yourself, that's going to move the dial for you in your life and help you really understand uh, yourself better and live a richer life, frankly. All right. So another discomfort you experienced on this trip was hunger. So you're out in the Alaskan wilds. You can only, the only thing you have to eat is what you pack in or what you kill. And so it took a while before you actually got anything. So you're just basically relying on what you brought in. What was that hunger like? And have you ever experienced a hunger like that before? (laughs) No, sir, I had not. (laughs) So we packed in about 2000 calories a day in these freeze dried mountain house meals. I don't know if you've ever had those. Um, Yeah, they're tasty. Yeah, yeah, they're they're not bad. They're not Um, bad. I, they're surprised. They're actually very, very delicious when you're on day 30 of not enough food. But we'd pack in those and uh, Cliff bars, so about 2,000 calories. But the thing is, is we're burning anywhere from 4,000 to 8,000 a day because we're just moving and carrying heavy stuff all day. So probably after the first week, you just I just started to become totally ravenous. You know, it's like I'm having to go into my next belt loop, just losing weight pretty quick. And also to your point the hunger is increasing over time and we're hunting. There's a real objective to this. Like we can solve this, but hunting is not easy. I mean, I'm up there with Donnie and he's arguably one of the best hunters in the world. And it took us a long time to finally get a caribou. So as we're hungry, your mind starts to really go to food. You just, all you can do is think about your hunger and really feel it deeply, you know? And before I got up there though, you know, my normal life, like I couldn't have told you the last time that I was truly physiologically deeply hungry. I would eat because, oh, it's breakfast and I eat breakfast at 10 a.m. or whatever the time is, or because I'm stressed. It's like, oh man, you know, I just got this crappy email. Uh, I'm just going to like reflexively have some M&Ms or whatever it might be. A lot of research has shown that most of our eating today is not driven by true physiological hunger. Most of it is driven by reasons other than hunger. So things like, 
you know, stress or, or maybe even boredom or just because a clock says this is the time we eat. And this is a big reason why 70% of the country is overweight or obese. You know, it's just we're constantly eating. I talked to one researcher who studied historical and current eating patterns. And, you know, back in the day, humans used to have two meals a day on average. They just, you know, eat whatever. But now we're eating across this 15-hour window. Like we snack all the time. One researcher basically told me, he's like, I don't, I truly don't think that people are ever actually hungry, hungry anymore. Of course, it's like, you know, there's individual variation, but as a whole, the country is just eating a lot and, and often never facing hunger. And this has had some repercussions. Being overweight and obese is the number one risk factor for chronic disease. It's the only thing uh, that overtakes it is smoking, but so few people smoke now, the rates have dropped that obesity is really becoming, you know, our biggest problem. And having worked in the health, nutrition, fitness space at Men's Health and for different magazines, millions of people try to diet every year. But I think the, the stat is something like 90 something percent of diets fail. And we have all these diets out there that tell us, eat this, not that, where it's like one food or one ingredient, that is the culprit. Like that is the reason why you're fat or why you, why you can't lose weight. But the reality is, is that all diets work by the same mechanism. By, by eating less, you end up dropping your calories and you lose weight. And that's, I mean, there's a little bit of debate around that, but the vast majority of scienti- scientists I speak to, that's, that's what's going on here. And so by, by being in Alaska, like I'm eating this crappy ultra processed food, tastes like crap, but I'm having to go through hunger. And when I get home, I step on that scale, I'm 10 pounds lighter. So it really showed me, oh, like the key to really changing your body. Not that I was really overweight going in, but it, it really showed me the re- what you eat is not as important as how much you eat and also why you eat. Right. So humans, humans have two kind of two types of hunger. You know, I've, I've sort of alluded to this. We have reward hunger and real hunger. As we evolved, we developed these mechanisms that really reward us to overeat, to eat too much too often. Now, back in the day, that wasn't possible. There just wasn't enough food, but now we're sort of surrounded in this sea of food and we can use those reward mechanisms to essentially comfort us. So you think of a term like comfort food, right? So food can kind of become a widget for a lot of people. And being in Alaska and coming back with that, you know, 10 pounds lighter, I I wanted to learn more about this idea of, of how people relate to food. So I I travel down to Austin and I meet this kid whose name is uh, Trevor Cashy. And to say that Trevor is smart is to basically say that LeBron James is good at basketball. I mean, this kid is another planet, brilliant. And he got his, he finished college at 18. He got his PhD at 23. He did a bunch of work in a cancer lab. And then he decided that he, he was, he'd always been interested in sport and nutrition. And he'd been sort of working with people on the side and was really good at it. And he decided to open his own sort of nutrition firm. And what's interesting about him is that to the point I made earlier, that really he's, he's wondering why you eat. He doesn't care so much what you eat. Like that'll figure itself out over time and you'll find foods that help you fend off hunger for longer. He's more interested in why you eat and he's more interested in getting you 
okay with facing the discomfort of hunger, realizing that hunger, feeling hunger, real hunger every now and then is good. You're going to need to do that if you want to lose weight. And his clients, they tend to be either really great athletes or like Navy SEAL types, CEO types, or they're people who have tried literally everything. And as a last ditch effort before bariatric surgery, they're going to come to him. And he's really moved the dial for people. And he's just a fascinating, fascinating person getting people to unpeel these layers of, okay, what does hunger feel like? Why are you eating in the first place? Et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, it was, it was definitely an interesting phenomenon. I'll tell you that. And there's other really fascinating, I won't get into this too much, go off topic, but there's a really interesting study called the Minnesota starvation study from the 1940s. And they did it in the run up to world war during world war two, because during World War II in Europe, more people, about the same amount of people died from starvation as did in battle. And so the U.S. wanted to figure out, okay, how do we refeed these people safely and what happens to starving people? So they got these guys and they basically starved them and tracked like what happened to them. And your body has all these like amazing mechanisms to keep you alive. Like it slows down your metabolism, drops your core temperature, and it makes your brain start to obsess about hunger. And I definitely felt that obsession for sure. And I think lots of people probably read those articles too about fasting. There's benefits there. Like your body just, when you don't have any food, it starts eating itself in a way to kind of clean things up. And that can help with longevity as well. They found that mice that fast or don't eat that much live longer than mice that eat all the time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that research is really interesting. So it kicks on this thing called autophagy where your body starts to burn cells and it tends to burn its weakest cells, ones that are damaged. And those cells are associated with disease and even diseases like cancer. So they think that fasting can be a good way to just sort of keep your body cleaner, get rid of a lot of the damaged stuff that's associated with disease. It's not a miracle cure, of course. I think one of the messages of this book is that we've lost so many of these different forms of discomfort that we used to face. Now, in and of themselves, any one of the discomforts can be relatively powerful. But once you start to figure out how to weave them all together, man, that is what really, really moves the dial. And I think a lot of times too often today, people think, oh, I can find this one thing and that's going to fix all my problems. It's like, no, we, a lot of times it's a combination of things. So that's kind of what I'm trying to get at with, with the overall theme of discomfort. So a lot of people, they know that they, they got to move their body, right? They know they sit at the, the office or their sofa all day. So what they, they say, they tell us, well, I'm going to go to the gym for an hour and that will sort of just mitigate all that. And so we exercise, we do the treadmill, we lift weights. When you were out there in Alaska, you didn't like, it seems like your training that you might've done at the gym probably didn't prepare you much for the actual physical activity you did. What surprised you about the physical activity out there in Alaska and how it differs from what we think of as physical activity in our modern life? Yeah. I mean, I tried to prepare. Heck, I spent a lot of time in the gym, but yeah, I mean, nothing can prepare you for constant, constant movement. And I mean, the hardest thing that we did is, uh, after we finally killed the caribou, we had to pack it back out to camp. So this is probably 100, 110 pounds in my pack. And, you know, I had like these antlers bursting out of the pack. It was pretty spectacular scene. But then we had to hike five miles all uphill across the tundra back to camp. And 
the tundra is, I mean, it's like one mile on the tundra is like five miles on a normal trail. It's just so terrible to walk on. It's covered in all these things called tundra tussocks, which are these big basketball sized things of weeds. Some parts of the ground will be frozen or really spongy or muddy. Like it's just terrible. And so with my background, having been at men's health for so long and still doing a lot for them. Like I've, I've had to embed myself in some really extreme gyms. I've done some 24 hour endurance events, which is not to say that I'm like a a pro athlete here. Like at the end of the day, I'm this gangly rider, but you know, I'm a pretty thick gangly rider. Um, but this carrying this weight across the tundra was by far the hardest thing that I'd ever done. And what I thought was most interesting though, is that, This is essentially what life was like for our ancestors all the time. You look at the data and our ancestors were 14 times more physically active than us on average. And so I really got interested in this idea of like, man, how has our physicality changed? What did we used to do for quote unquote exercise, which was really just life because people didn't exercise in the past. And how does this compare to what we do now? So as you alluded to, now we go into a gym, this, you know, temperature controlled gym, and we get on a treadmill and our, an elliptical and we do our, you know, 30 minutes on that. And then we go down to the weight room and we, you know, curl some perfectly balanced weights a few times. Maybe we do some bench presses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I travel to Harvard and I meet a guy whose name is Dan Lieberman. He's a anthropologist there. He basically told me, look, when you compare us to other animals, Humans are athletically pathetic. <laughs> Those are the words that he used. And I just love that. We are slow compared to most other mammals. We're also very weak. But in 2004, this guy discovered that humans are good at a couple of things. And one of those is running long distances in the heat. So we evolved to do what's called persistence hunting. We would see an animal and we'd slowly but surely run it down over time on a hot day, eventually the animal would overheat and topple over from exhaustion and we would spear it. And then we would have to carry it back to camp. So we, these persistence hunts could be anywhere from 10 to 20 miles. I mean, we're talking long distances here. So the, the 2004 study was really about distance running and how we sort of evolved to do that. And he, that study is actually the one, if you're, I'm sure everyone who's listening remembers when barefoot running and like very, very minimal, minimalist running shoes were popular. It sort of set off that whole craze because early humans would have run without shoes on. And, you know, there was maybe associated with less injury, which they found wasn't necessarily true. And the Lieberman guy I talked to, he just, he secretly hates that he's been associated with this crazy barefoot running movement. Um, but as I'm packing this caribou out across Alaska, it occurs to me, okay, we are so-called, you know, born to run. But once we run, we have to carry this weight all the way back to camp. And it's like, well, how did that shape us? So I went down this crazy rabbit hole of the act of carrying heavy stuff. and. Humans are the only animals, it turns out, that are any good at carrying weight across distance. And it's really shaped our bodies. So the combination of of running and then carrying explains why we have these long legs, why we don't have much fur, keeps us from overheating, why we sweat, that also keeps us from overheating. We have these complicated noses that humidify air. And we also have really strong grips 
to grab stuff so we can walk it. And we also have short torsos, which helps with, with caring. So like the acts of running and caring really shaped us as human beings. It allowed us to more or less take over the globe and like hunt better and also explore and, um, you know, engage in warfare. And when you look at what humans do now, we still run. So we've sort of reintroduced running back into our days, but very few people carry heavy things for distance. And it's this thing that we evolved to do that these Harvard researchers think is probably uniquely good for us from a, from a fitness perspective. Yeah. That led you down to, exp- you know, hooking up with uh, Go Ruck and yes. learning about that community there where they're carrying heavy things for distance. Yeah, exactly. So after Harvard, I bombed down to Jacksonville, Florida, and I meet Jason McCarthy. And he's a former Green Beret. Some of your readers, or sorry, I always say readers because I'm a writer. Some of your listeners might uh, know him. And he started GORUCK, which is a company that makes these beautiful military spec backpacks that are specifically designed for rucking, which is carrying weight in a pack for distance. So the only people who have really reintroduced carrying back into their days is the military. And rucking is really the foundation of military fitness. And for the average person, you know, Jason describes it as it's uh, cardio for people who hate to run, lifting for people who hate the gym. So you're working both strength and endurance at the same time, which is uncomfortable, right? But it's also very approachable. So one of the best things you can do for your fitness is to rock, just throw, you know, try not to go over 50 pounds because that is tended to, tends to like set off injuries, but 50 or below, it's one of the best things you can do for your fitness. You're like doing all these amazing things that we evolved to do that we don't do anymore. And it's so different, I think, than most workouts now, which I'm not saying that, you know, going to the gym and, and lifting weights isn't important or that running on treadmill is important. Like those things are obviously good, but is it, does it really in play with how we are adapted to exercise? I mean, something like a ruck, you're not only you're working strength and endurance, but you're also probably outside having to navigate your environment. And there's some research that says exercising while having some demands on your brain, like hiking along a trail is how humans evolve to exercise. So it has these benefits that can really improve your brain health over time. So I think we've just come so far away in general from how we used to be physically active. And we've sort of had to engineer this, these kind of new strange ways of physical activity when it's really a lot can be a lot simpler than that. And by simplifying it and thinking about what we used to do in the past, it probably can be more effective in some ways. One last thing I want to talk about, you noticed on your trip, you didn't shower or bathe, obviously. You might have you know, gotten a wet washcloth and cleaned yourself up from some river water. But you notice that actually I, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. Like you would, I, I'm not, I don't have any diseases. I'm fine. And you actually did some research saying that our uh, overemphasis on cleanliness might be backfiring in some ways. Yeah. And now this has become an interesting question, especially in the time of, of COVID. But when I'm up there, you know, I don't shower. I, if I'm washing my hands, it's probably in some, some river water. And, you know, when I get back, I'm of course smell like a garbage dump mixed with a salmon run. It was the the hotel staff was really happy to, to greet me. Um, but we've essentially sanitized everything from our lives. You know, we, we learned about a hundred years ago that germs are associated with disease 
And we thought, okay, well, then we should kill every germ. But it turns out that very, very few germs are actually associated with disease. And a lot of germs and microbes are actually good for us. So you look at the data and younger people have about a two to four fold risk of things like colon and rectal cancer compared to people born in 1950. Now, the reason for this, they think, is because we really started to sanitize everything and are always using Purell all the time. And kids don't go outside as much. We no longer go out and get dirty. But it turns out that like when we go out and we expose ourselves to, you know, dirt and some natural germs, it builds up our defenses and it improves our gut microbiome which has a lot of benefits for our health. It kind of gives us this armor where our body is like able to deal with things. You can almost think about it as the same idea as a vaccine, right? By like giving you this low dose of sort of a mimicking a bug, your body builds up resistance to the real thing, more or less. So we don't have that anymore. And the message is not, you know, just stop washing your hands. Because like I said, we're in the time of COVID. We need to wash our hands, need to practice all the sanitary things. The message is really that you know, going outside and getting dirty can be a really good thing. There's a lot of researchers who study this who make their children garden and go outside and, you know, kind of play in the dirt because it can be so good for their system as a whole. And even our food, we've lost some of the benefits because we now, all our food is like washed and perfectly prepared and it's also totally refined. Whereas the research says if you eat more raw vegetables, that can also help your gut microbiome because there's fiber and you're also usually onboarding some germs that just happen to be on a low level on the vegetables. So, I mean, you, you went on this hunt, this misogi, and you experienced all this stuff and you learned some things about being uncomfortable. How have you incorporated this into your regular life? Are you like rucking while fasting in silence and then rolling around in the mud? What are you doing? Well, no, I live in the desert, so I, I do all that, but I do it in just dirt. It's too dry <laughs> out here. <laughs> no, I tend to think about this stuff as like, what can I do across the days, weeks, months, and, and years? You know, it's it's not like I'm fasting every single day, but like I do try and incorporate times where I go through some hunger. I do try and leave my cell phone when I go out on walks in nature, oftentimes with a rock on my back. You know, it's like, how can I, how can I add these little things back into my life that make me just make my days just a little bit more uncomfortable? And then when I think about it on a longer perspective, uh, I try and do one really hard thing, sort of this Masogi idea once a year and spend a lot more time outdoors. So for example, um, one of the guidelines of Masogi is that you don't really advertise about it. But I talked to Marcus and he was like, well, you're kind of like preaching this idea that I think will help people. So you can talk to people about your Masogis. So I did one the other day where I had never run 16 miles, more than 16 miles in my life, you know? And I went out into the desert on this trail and I was like, okay, I'm going to try and run, you know, what would be really hard for me? What's that 50, 50. And I said, and eh, could I run, you know, 32 miles like that? Yeah, I could probably run 32 miles if I really, you know, had to. So it didn't feel like 50, 50. And I was like, well, could I run like more than 45? I was like, eh, I don't know if I could do more than that. And so that was kind of the key, key to me where I really had this apprehension and I went out and did it and it was super hard. But along the way, like I learned so much about myself and I returned from that being like, man, that was awesome. Like in the moment you're like, this sucks. Why am I doing this? This is terrible. You need to quit. 
you definitely need to quit. You should quit right now. But by just putting one foot in front of the other and doing that, it was like, oh man, I don't have to, if I don't have to quit at that and I can do that, you know, what else is possible? We just tend to sell ourselves short, I think. So finding these ways to integrate discomfort back into your life in small ways and big ways, I think is the key. And and the book really is sort of a blueprint for how you do that. Because there's a lot of different discomforts that we've lost over time. And by not having those in our lives, we're, we're missing something vital, not only for our health and our mental health, but also for, you know, our spirit. I think a lot of this, um, I think there's a lot about humans that, you know, you can't necessarily measure in a hospital or doctor can't exactly explain. But when we do stuff like this, that stuff sort of bubbles to the surface and it kind of tells you a little bit more about how to live a interesting, memorable life. Well, Michael, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? So the book is called The Comfort Crisis and it's available, I don't know, wherever you buy books. Find an independent store. I'd love it if you do that if you're interested. And then you, if you want to learn more about me in general, you can go to my website. It's uh, eastermichael.com. And I'm also on Instagram posting about random stuff. Not not too often because you just heard me talk about how I try to not spend too much time on my cell phone, but I do, I do post there. So, and that's uh, Michael underscore Easter. And it was awesome to talk to you, man. I really appreciate you having me on. Well, thank you, Michael. Appreciate it. Take care. My guest today was Michael Easter. He's the author of the book, The Comfort Crisis. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at his website, eastermichael.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash comfort crisis, where you can find links to resources where you delve deeper into this topic. And if you're looking to do hard things, looking for some structure to do hard things, check out our membership platform, The Strenuous Life. We've basically taken all the content we've talked about and written about on The Art of Manliness for the past 15 years put some structure to it. We have badges based on hard skills like hunting, orienteering. We've got uh, self-defense. We've got soft skills too, personal finances, public speaking, et cetera. And we also have weekly challenges that are going to put you outside of your comfort zone on a physical, social, and mental level. So check it out, strenuouslife.co. We've got an enrollment opening up in June. Hope to see you there. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so at Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay. Remind you to not only listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.